0: Our teaching text this morning comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 14 to 18. It's found on page 1080 in your Shed Bible, if you have one and you want to follow along. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh We both have access to the Father by one Spirit. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Good morning, everyone. The Lord be with you. Hey, my name is Troy. Happy to be one of our pastors here. Um,. We are in the third week of this series called Alive in Christ where we're going to be looking at bits of the book of Ephesians and we're going to look at this letter that was intended for an ancient church and we're going to ask that God would say something to this church in 2023. Um, And uh, I want to thank my sister's Ashley and Denise, and my brothers, Tim and Brian, because they helped me this week to sort of narrow the scope. I absolutely love the book of Ephesians. I decided at the beginning of this calendar year that I was going to memorize it. Um, at this point, I am a good three and a half verses in. <laughs> um be encouraged, any of you who have started off this year with really high scripture hopes, I'm with you. Um, so there's so many, there are so many things here that I wanted to talk about. I typically write an outline early in the week, and this week it was three and a half pages long, just the outline. said, so how in the world am I going to take all of those things? So I'm grateful for them for narrowing the scope. Um, I just also wanna say this, I I was thinking about, um, it may not be a true story, but I like it. There's a story about Eugene Peterson, um, who was author and theologian and pastor, um, that he, evidently one of his um, adult children was coming back to church. um, And uh, he was excited that his son was coming because he was pumped about the sermon that he was gonna preach. And he said to his son, I'm so glad you're going to be here. This sermon is going to be great. Sermon's over. He asks his son, what was it like? And his son said, well, dad, I already heard that sermon from you before. And Peterson is like losing his mind. He goes, no, I've never preached that sermon before. What are you talking about? And his son says to his dad, well, dad, you only have one sermon, which has got to feel great, right, if your whole life has been as a preacher. And then Peterson realizes his son was totally right. He's only ever had one sermon. Um, I think I only have one sermon. And I think I come back to it almost every week. I don't say that as an apology. I say that as please don't tune out if it seems like I'm going to talk about this again. Um, It is one of the things that I feel like God continues to want to say through me, but also what kind of gets me fired up. So I'm going to talk about the church. I'm going to talk about what it means to be us together. That's what we're going to do today. Um, just a quick word about the letter of Ephesians before we jump into chapter two. Um, Paul takes a long time to get practical in the book of Ephesians. Many of us are worker bees who want to read the Bible and find out what it is that we should do. Ephesians can be troubling if that's what we're doing. He takes a long time. You're gonna get practical instruction, you're gonna get pragmatic matters, but Paul, especially in the beginning, he takes a long time to establish um, these foundational objective realities. One of the defining markers of the book of Ephesians is that it's made up of a lot of worship and prayer. Ephesians doesn't really teach about worship and prayer. It's in fact made up of worship and prayer. And so right at the very beginning, we get a lot of that happening. I think Paul's trying to confirm, yes, some objective realities to get straight. But he also wants to establish a spirit of worship from the very beginning, a spirit of worship that I think is intended to continue throughout the reading and the hearing of Ephesians, a spirit of worship that should influence the way that we read and hear and interpret and understand Ephesians. And so I want to return to one of those moments of worship before we step into chapter two, and I'm going to ask you to read it with me, okay? So let's read a bit of this praise from Paul. in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has really given us in the one he loves. Thanks be to God. I hope one of the things that you noticed when we were reading that um, were all of the plural pronouns. Not a lot of excitement for grammar, I see. Our Lord blessed us, chose us, predestined us, given us. Paul is constantly, you will notice throughout Ephesians, he's constantly addressing the plural you, the us. And the bits that we're going to look at in chapter 2, they are no exception. In fact, today's teaching is going to focus on what it means to be alive together in Christ. The audience at the very beginning Paul establishes, it's to God's holy people in Ephesus, to the faithful ones. Paul is stressing unity all throughout Ephesians, reminding people then and reminding us now that God is interested in more than individual isolated souls being alive in Christ. That, in fact, God has always sought and made promises to a people. And that being alive is not just for us individually, but for us together. This in-Christness is meant for us all. So, let's jump right into chapter 2. I've got that big outline to cover. Chapter 2, I want to highlight for us just three things, three realities that I think Paul is trying to stress to people, three extensions. In fact, I think these are extensions of the prayerful spirit that begins chapter 1, ways that we can continue to emphasize the spirit of worship. So first, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because in Christ we have proximity with God. Paul begins in verse 11. We didn't hear that read, but Tim helped us to pray some of it. We begin in verse 11 with Paul encouraging the audience to remember. Remember that at one time you were far from God. Now the primary audience, the big bulk of the audience here in Ephesians would have been Gentile believers. This was a group that was different from the Jewish people this was a group that was religiously and ethnically separate and distinct and in fact in many ways before coming to faith in Jesus these gentiles they were on the outside looking in and then verse 12 it gives us a little bit of a summary what was that outsiderness like and paul gives us these words you were separate from Christ you were excluded from citizenship in Israel. You were foreigners to the covenants of the promise. You were without hope. You were without God in the world. That's a crummy picture, isn't it? That's a crummy picture. And Paul is calling these Gentile believers to remember this. Remember who you once were. Now. I can also imagine that the Jewish portion of the audience, they would have heard this call to remember, and they would have appropriated that for themselves. Their situations were really different, but the Jewish tradition also called people to remember. Um, I think we see here in chapter two a bit of an echo of Pastor Kyle Lake's favorite portion of the Bible. In Deuteronomy chapter six, God is speaking through Moses to the people of Israel, and God says this to them. Be careful that you don't forget. And make sure that your children don't forget that you were once slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt. Don't forget who you once were. Now, I'm going to guess that most of us, most of us would prefer not to remember the crummy parts of our past. Most of us would prefer not to remember what was difficult, what was complicated. So what's up with this biblical call to remember who you were? I think it's found here because neither of these particular examples and the examples throughout the scriptures to remember they don't end in bleakness. They don't end in what you once were. Deuteronomy 6 keeps going, remember that you once were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand. And in Ephesians 2, we get the same sort of a glimpse. You were once separate from Christ, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away, you have been brought near. One of the key aspects of remembering is to highlight the goodness of God's powerful action. We remember so that we might highlight the goodness of God's powerful action. Paul isn't interested in seeing people shackled to their past. Rather, Paul is encouraging a kind of continual awareness, a continual awareness of the mercy and the grace of God in Christ. Once you were far away, but now, but now in Christ, you have nearness, you have closeness, you have intimacy, you have immediacy, you have proximity with God. We remember in order to highlight the goodness of God's powerful action. Friends, I wonder, I wonder if you remember. I'm guessing that some of us have possibly lost touch with our previous lostness. That maybe it's been decades of being a follower of Jesus and it's tough to remember what life was like before being a Christian. Some of us, admittedly, you have pasts that are really difficult to revisit and to remember. Some of us, I would put myself in this camp, some of us didn't have like a dramatic conversion experience where like you left behind a life of deviant behavior and criminal activity. And so it's hard, it's kinda hard to remember what life was like before being a Christian. I want to say this, please consider the invitation to remember so that you don't lose sight of gratitude. So that you don't lose sight, you don't lose a sense of the thankfulness that you once were far away, but in Christ you have been brought near. And some of us, I wonder, some of us have potentially lost touch not with your lostness, but with your acceptance. That maybe after decades of being a follower of Jesus, uh, you've been living without a real explicit or felt realization of the promises of God. That for some of us, being a Christian hasn't made your life better, certainly not easier. For some of us, we're in seasons where we're doubting or we're questioning, and in that season, we feel a kind of sense of alienation or distance. Please consider the invitation to remember as an opportunity to be connected with and to be aware of confidence, the security that Tim mentioned last year, the assurance that you have Been brought near. Second reality, I think Paul is trying to stress uh, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, because in Christ we have peace with God and each other. This is the portion of the text that Lori, happy birthday, um, read for us just a couple minutes ago. Um, Not only only has the distance with God been dealt with, but the distance and the division between us has been dealt with. Peace between us has been accomplished. Jesus, who Paul says in this text is remarkable, Jesus is peace and Jesus makes peace and Jesus proclaims peace. This Jesus purposed to do something new, something which previously didn't exist. Jesus purposed out of two groups of people, separated in every possible way, to make one new humanity. Jesus came, it says that Jesus came and preached to those who were near and who were far. It's language that's trying to convey the comprehensiveness of the action and the work of Jesus. It's for everyone, near and far. But notice, what's not being described here is some kind of Pollyanna, everybody sits around the campfire getting along with each other that Paul stresses the kind of intensity and the seriousness of this peace when he says that this peace came about because Jesus destroyed barriers and he put to death hostility. Uh, the scholar, Lynn Koick, she writes this. She says, Christ's peace is active, a force of creative destruction that demolishes evil and builds unity in the present age as well as the age to come. I love this phrase, a force of creative destruction. And I think her language helps to emphasize the seriousness of Jesus' purpose. Something must be put to death so that something new can live. And something must be destroyed so that something new may be built. Jesus destroyed barriers and put to death hostility. So friends, family of God, church of Jesus Christ around the world... Why, oh, why, do we insist on bringing back to life that which Jesus put to death? Why do we insist on resurrecting hostility and division? Jesus placed his very self at the center. Jesus placed himself where the dividing wall used to be. He has placed himself at the center there. So why do we choose to place at the center our preferences and issues? Why do we choose to centralize denominational affinities and political leanings and opinions about masks and vaccines and firearms and colors on walls and worship styles? Why do we continue to centralize things that only lead us right back to division rather than centralize the work of Jesus on the cross, the work that made peace a reality, the work that has given everyone access to the Father by the Spirit. Jesus himself is our peace. And this new humanity, this new humanity into which you and I have been included what a little earlier in the letter, Paul calls God's handiwork that's been created in Christ Jesus. This new humanity is a reality. It's not something we make up. It's not something we make happen. It has been made for us. But it is something that we must submit to. It is something that we must cooperate with. It is a reality that we must live into. Final reality I think Paul is stressing here. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because in Christ we are the dwelling of God. In the last paragraph of chapter 2 we find more confirmation about what has been accomplished in the work of Jesus. Um, Earlier, Paul reminded these Gentiles, right, uh, of who they once were, excluded, foreigners, separate. And then in verse 19, we see a kind of reversal. Then Paul says, you are no longer foreigners. You're no longer strangers. You are not who you once were, you are fellow citizens of God's people and you are members of God's household. It's an amazing reversal. Those who previously knew only otherness now belong in Christ. And this is remarkable news. If you have been a person who has experienced the loneliness and the shame of otherness, of exclusion, of being treated as less than, this is remarkable news. And yet, it's not even the most remarkable bit of the closing of this chapter. Paul goes on to make this mind-boggling claim about our new humanity. Paul claims that these people have been joined together as a holy temple in the Lord. Now, this is imagery that the original audience would have been very familiar with. Those of the Jewish tradition would have known the temple. Well, that signified that was the place where God chose to dwell on earth. And we've talked a little bit in the past about the city of Ephesus. The city of Ephesus is dominated primarily by this temple to Artemis, this enormous, imposing temple that would have cast a shadow over the whole city and over all of the people. Temples were a big deal. And so it's striking when Paul says, these two groups of people who were once so separate are now being built together into a holy temple in the Lord. And then he adds this final emphasis, this final point of emphasis. These people are being built together together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. These people are being built together to be a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. A mystery for sure. But this is my one sermon. That's it right there. It's the thing I most long for. It's the thing... I must pray for, that that mystery would be realized and actualized. Paul goes stresses that this temple, this household, this dwelling, it is built on Jesus who is called the chief cornerstone. Now to clarify, the cornerstone wasn't just like a a ceremonial block in the corner of the building that had some names and dates inscribed on it. And the cornerstone also isn't like the most beautifully decorated or the highest placed um, stone in a structure, getting pride of place. I've heard the cornerstone talked about that way before. The cornerstone, the cornerstone is the load bearer. The entire structure depends on that one stone. That cornerstone provides alignment for the entire structure. Without this cornerstone, the building, the structure, has no hope of enduring. And Paul says, Jesus is that Cornerstone for this new humanity. Jesus, again, placed at the very central, not decorative, not ceremonial, essential. Placed at the very center, the load bearer of the new humanity. Jesus makes the dwelling place of God possible. In Christ, those who were previously excluded from the temple, now they are the temple. That in Christ, the uncontainable God chooses to dwell and be present among us. God's presence is realized, encountered, and experienced in this new humanity. Not exclusively in the new humanity, but especially. Especially in the new humanity, where what once was separated has now been brought together on this chief cornerstone. And this handiwork of God that Paul says before, this handiwork created in Christ Jesus was created for good works. This new humanity created for good works. This proximity, this peace, this presence of God, it's intended to be good news for the entire world. We are made into a Jesus people for the sake of the world. Now, I'm aware, as I said at the beginning, that many of us come to teaching the sermons looking for the what then shall I do portion of the sermon. And I've been praying for something a little bit different this week. I've been praying that our church, that our church's worship would be stirred and stoked in a new way. I've been praying that our gratitude for what Christ has done in us and through us would be increased. I've been praying that our awe for the work of Jesus would grow and grow and grow. I've been praying that we would sense a renewed desire to be God's dwelling place so that the world would be renewed. So the world would be restored by our spirit-empowered good works. And I've been praying that our praise of the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ would increase, would grow in passion because we know that we have been given every spiritual blessing in Christ. As we come to this table, I wanna share just these words from Cherith Nordling. She's a theologian who's coming to hang out with our formation school folks here in just a couple weeks. I love her language. She says this, the hospitality of our host is unsettling. He invites all to come home and all to find their story, their identity, their family with God, with his son. And with his other children. We have been made alive together in Christ. And so we eat together this meal, this meal that's given for all the members of God's household. And so I say to you, the Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. And let us give thanks to the Lord our God. And in the spirit of thanksgiving, let's pray together. How right a good and a joyful thing it is in all times and in all places to give thanks to you, God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And so we join our voices with angels and archangels and the entire company of heaven who are forever surrounding the throne, singing to your glory this hymn of praise. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. So Holy Spirit, would you move in a powerful way among us? Feed us shape us, change us? Would you make the peace that is a reality among us more and more a reality? And would you receive us as we place ourselves on this table to be offered up for the sake of the world? All to the glory of your name and amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he had a meal with his disciples, with his friends, and uh, he took bread and he broke it. And he said to his friends, this is my body which is broken and given to you, so take it and eat it. And then he took the cup and he blessed it. And he said, This cup is the new covenant, the new promise given to you in my blood. So take it and drink it. And whenever we eat and we drink this bread and this cup, we tell the story again. And we reactualize the peace that has been given to us with our God. And we also reactualize the peace that is true among us. And we join our voices and we say this story we rehearse this story we summarize this story again with these simple winsome phrases said together christ has died christ is risen and christ will come again i want to extend a small invitation today as we come to the table i wonder if maybe a way of us living into our being alive together in christ is to eat together. Now, of course, we're doing that. But I wonder if today might be one of the days when we eat and drink at the same time. So I'm gonna invite you, if you'd like to participate in this, that uh, we get the elements and then bring them back to your seat. And then in just a minute here, I'm gonna invite us all to eat and to drink together. And just as a small gesture, a small way of living into our at-oneness. Just an invitation, no obligation There's no gatekeeper at the table Stopping you from eating We're going to pray, we're going to sing We're going to eat and drink We're going to do our best to live into this unity together And so Come and receive who you are The body of Christ Let's taste and see that the Lord is good